Susanna, will you call the roll, please? Trustee Lawrence. Here. Trustee Banerjee? Here. Trustee DeVries? Absent. Trustee Hernandez is absent. Trustee Jensen? Here. Trustee Lujanani? Present. Trustee Varney? Here. Trustee Zorthian? Here. We have a quorum. Thank you. Um, there's no action on our agenda today, but I will, as we know, our education meetings are designed to give the board uh, greater insight into the operations of the hospital and the purposes of our existence. And so I'm going to turn it over to um, Del Vecchio and have you introduce our, our program. Um, actually, which, I'm sorry, I, was, I forgot which order we're going in. Are we doing business in first? Okay, we are. Great. Great. Uh, good afternoon, trustees. Uh, great to see you guys again, as usual. Um, so today, as, as Trustee Lawrence has said, uh, um, we have uh, our sort of uh, actually expected education point, and we've taken the liberty to add another education point that uh, uh, is in furtherance of uh, some information that would be helpful for an upcoming decision uh, that this board will, will need to make in collaboration with the Board of Supervisors. So, um, as a um, first point, um, the first education is our scheduled education on patient experience, um, and uh, that'll be led today by, quite capably, by our chief nursing executive, uh, Kinsey Rickold, uh, along with um, our guest and uh, partner from uh, Press Ganey, Ms. Tiffany Yen. Um, uh, that session, uh, like, uh, well, let me just say broadly, all of the sessions as we've gone through, including our last one on um, uh, health equity, have been about further your knowledge of things that are pertinent uh, in, in our space, some of them uh, much more immediate in their sort of uh, um, relevance and import in terms of actions that the board will need to take and make. Uh, and some of them are a little bit more strategic in nature or just global in nature. Uh, and I would count today as more of global in nature with some uh, potential uh, implications for future things with respect to our strategic plan, possibly even budget. Um, you know that in our global uh, or in a long-term perspective, we're uh, on a magnet journey uh, for, for excellence for the organization and uh, patient experience and involvement in leadership and patient experience from uh, nursing and other clinical areas is a big part of that. And so that's uh, what today's session will, will really get at in terms of what we're doing um, uh, in this space. Um, I'll just say parenthetically, last week or last month, uh, in case it wasn't entirely clear and, and I take fall for that, uh, was more about more strategic planning uh, sort of piece. Um, uh, when we designed the sessions, we were really driving them around topics that you guys had expressed some interest in, uh, but we certainly didn't want to just do education for education's sake because you could do that on your own. Um, uh, this was really more about uh, um, addressing areas that you're interested in with some eye towards a potential action. And I think, uh, and I hope uh, that um, because the health equity piece is informing our strategic plan, uh, that you'll see that reflected in some of the actual um, directions that we take or decisions that we're proposing taking over the next uh, three years for a strategic plan. So so just want to sort of put context around all of the sessions um, um, and including today's. Uh, uh, and so the patient experience is more long-term long, long in its um, um, sort of reach uh, and, and, and goal. Whereas the second one that's here is, again, about the 330H uh, designation, which is our uh, federally qualified health center designation for all of our um, uh, services or um, primary care services here at Highland. 
or not Highland, I'm sorry, here at AHS, and those are done under the partnership with the Board of Supervisors and, and the county, uh, which really owns that designation. Uh, and because of the, re, the audit, I should say, the audit that we had back in August, I believe, uh, we just got back the report at the end of uh, December, around New Year's Eve, and one of the issues that we uh, projected we would have was this issue around the governance for that, uh, that uh, the, the federal rules around this call for a certain type of uh, composition of your governance and what roles they have and what sort of authorities they have that that uh, we've been heretofore given a waiver on and we no longer get one on. So jointly with this um, board and the Board of Supervisors, uh, we, we have some ex recommendations around how best to address that. And um, um, Mike will be going through that with us today and helping you to understand that and addressing any questions that you might have in anticipation of rebroaching this issue when we have our joint meeting with the Board of Supervisors on March 2nd. So uh, unless there's questions for me about either of those things, I will I will just turn it over and we can get going. Okay? Thank so you. So we'll turn it over Thank to you, Kenzie. Um, so what is patient experience? Um, patient experience is patient's perception of care at every touch point across the healthcare system. It's no longer confined to the wall, within the walls of a hospital, a clinic, or um, a physician's office. It, um, it starts before a patient enters the system, while they are in the system, and after they leave the system. Um, <clears throat> it could start when they are in our parking lot, in any healthcare's parking lot, navigating the parking lot for a place to park, how easy that is. It, it starts with their first encounter with a security guard. The first word? Um, the first, um, and their first interaction with a security guard, their first interaction with somebody who is doing the registration. And once they enter the healthcare system and they are a patient in a bed, how responsive are the care providers? What about the others who, who, who serve the patient, the, the support services? What do we do? How responsive are the healthcare providers to the patient's suffering, um, relief of pain, um, anxieties? And when we send them home, how, uh, what communication do we share with those patients? What do they get from the healthcare, the healthcare system? Their needs while they are at home, their needs when they go home. And so, as you can see, it doesn't only, they can even form their perception while at home watching a news clip about the hospital or healthcare system. So it's, um, it's before, during, and after. And what we would like to do right now is show you a short video clip on patient experience. The first word that comes to my mind is pain. Unneeded pain. Suffering is a, is a loaded word. Suffering encompasses all of those sort of negative physical experiences. But it isn't always medical. I think of it as an emotional state. The Latin core of the word patient is I am suffering. That recognition that I am suffering provides us with an imperative to try and figure out those ways in which we as caregivers can impact that suffering and reduce it. When I became a patient at Yale Haven Hospital, it allowed for a different perspective. 
seeing things in this position is entirely different than when you see things in this position. So I was on vacation, went down to the ocean, uh, dove into a wave where it pushed me into a sandbar. In a split second, knew that something's wrong. I can't move my arms whatsoever. Can't move my legs, can't get up. And when an accident like this happens, it's something you never dream of happening. It's a time of so much uncertainty. As high as you were because you have a brand new daughter in your arms, you're just quickly that low because she's being taken away from you to the NICU and you have no idea what's going on. Dr. Morris was watching a couple of spots. He knew that, um, that I had cancer and um, I had to be told. At that moment, it is uh, too easy to fill the silence, fill my own anxieties. You say less and listen more. If we wanted to create a healing environment for our patients, we needed to shift our thinking to have a willingness to see it from their perspective. I always think of my family member in the bed or myself in the bed. And that really puts a different twist on everything. A few of the causes of stress for me initially in the hospital were just not knowing what was next. What made it successful was that those people communicated. Everyone was up to speed. They clicked. It was like a teamwork. We changed the culture so that it's not a place where we are employed, but it's a place where our patients are healed. And that shift in focus, that shift in culture has become an effort with everybody who enters the floor. So if we work together as a team, and we can cluster our care together so that we can have less disruption, it is a workflow change, but it was the right thing to do for our patients. Having nurses on your team that really attach with you on a personal level makes all the difference. You know they're not just there doing their job. They're there because they want to see you get better. In the end, what it really comes down to is compassion, the compassion that caregivers show to families. Amanda's doing well. Here she is making all this progress, making believers out of us all. The secret of the care of a patient is in caring for a patient. I think if we hold those uh, sentiments um, close to our hearts, we will actually see a revolution in how we provide care. So why is it important? Um, it's important to create an exceptional environment for our patients to experience incredible care. It is, because it is so important for Alameda Health System, it is one of our strategic goals. Pillar number four, experience. Next slide. It's, um, next slide. <laughs> it's also mandated by CMS, the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare, mandate hospitals to collect and submit data. That data is actually reflected on um, a public website where patients can see and compare hospital to hospital. It's also included in the Accountability um, Care Act of 2010. Next slide. Um, Although this survey is a little dated, 
it shows that based on that publicly available performance that consumers could go and travel a long distance, cancel appointments, to receive care in a very highly rated hospital. Next slide. And now I would turn the uh, presentation to Tiffany to talk more about um, the edge caps and how patient experience those, um, how the data is collected, how the data is reported, how the data is analyzed, and the, how the data is compared from hospital to hospital. Good evening, everyone. So on this slide, this shows our various mandated program by the federal government. So I'm going to first start with the acronym, uh, where we see acute CAPS programs. CAPS stands for Consumer Assessment of Healthcare Providers and System. This is a standardized core set of measurements questions developed by the government. And so they use the same core measures and they intend to roll out a various care settings to measure the patient's experience. So what you see here in the pink color are the ones that are already in mandate. For example, the very first bar in patient setting, in short, we call that hospital caps, H caps, that has been in place since 2006. The other pink bar that you see are the ones that we fully anticipate that is coming on board as a mandatory survey for care setting in the what's called hospital outpatient services, Sunday surgeries or surgery centers, um, ED emergency department, inpatient psychiatric facilities, as well as inpatient rehab facilities. Those are tentatively scheduled to go as mandatory in 2018 on CMS master work plan. Um, the ones that's in gray are the child hospital caps. Um, those are for children's hospital. Um, because CMS really don't pay for children, they're meaning for Medicare fee-for-service. So that is a voluntary submission by the children's hospital or those hospitals have inpatient children or pediatric units. But uh, the outpatient is the one that is expect well, actually is coming on live this year, started January 1, 2017. At present time, it's under what's called voluntary reporting, but it will be anticipated it will fully become mandated in next year. Along with the mandating the survey itself, it also means the outcome of such surveys will be tied to the annual payment update. In addition to the federal program, it's also important for the board to keep in mind that Alameda Health System is part of the 21 public hospital system within the California. So in 2010, the state of California has implemented the Delivery System Reform Incentive Program, in short it's called DISRIP. This initially was a pay for reporting program for some of the measures. We are now in the second iteration, which just started now in calendar year 2016. The program has transitioned from pay to report. Now it's going to move to pay for performance. So what this means, there are actual dollars that's going to be tied to the outcome of specific measures, and patient satisfaction is one of those key metrics. And so you will, you will all require to set a target goal, and should the organization does not meet such target goal, then there is potential fee risk or financial implication 
for this program. So I just want to kind of summarize the various programs that the federal government has already in place. So as you probably are familiar with the Hospital Compare website, so the survey, HCAP survey itself, was initially introduced and implemented in 2006. Then in 2008, CMS launched the public website, which is called Hospital Compare, and it's in public domain, that went live in 2008. And for those programs, the measurement is based on what's called top box score. So only the most favorable responses are counted. Anything less than most favorable, it's not included. Then in 2010, under the Affordable Care Act, CMS then introduced the Value Purchasing Points Program, VPP. And in that program, um, it comprised, initially when it went launched, it comprised the core measure, the clinical measurements, which accounts for 70% of the value purchasing points calculation. And patient satisfaction accounted for 30% of the score the VVP score calculation. CMS actually then went ahead, used the same methodology and scoring using top box to calculate scores for that program. Just last year, then CMS received feedback mainly from consumers. Some of them may have difficulty understanding what top box is. So they introduced the five-star ratings, and this was launched um, in April of 2015. And for this particular program, CMS actually decided to use mean score rather than top box for their score calculations. So they're kind of using the common, you know, the consumer side, TripAdvisor or HealthGrade, using that same concept uh, for the ease of consumer to make their hospital comparison. Moving into this year, um, matter of fact, effective April 1, 2016, um, CMS will be introducing uh, the comprehensive joint replacement program. There are 67 metropolitan service area were selected and it's mandatory required if you're a hospital within these um, MSAs. And Alameda does reside within that market. For this program, they are gonna use the same HCAP score and it will account 40% of the performance outcome for the CJR program. And they're also gonna use linear mean score as a methodology to, to track performance. So the important takeaway here is that you see that CMS continue to um, really value the importance of patients' experience through this particular measurement, the HCAP score, and weave that into various initiatives and programs. At the end of the day, it's the same survey, same measure. You just have more dollars at risk. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. So are you saying that in, in the past, we were they threw out that one F we got during the semester, and they only took our top scores. But now, for these for these new ratings, that they're 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 ca they're capturing everything. But the la is that correct? The mean scores. Right. The means. Yeah. And then uh, this last one is just on joint replacement. Yes. So question number one: the mean scores. So top box. So if never, sometimes, usually, always, or to scale, then only always is counted. Anything less than that, it's tossed. Yeah, Means so it's a reverse. It was yeah. your 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 scoring was based off of the A and the B that you got, the B, the C, D, and F. 
it didn't, it, it's not that it didn't count. It actually counted against you that you didn't get more A's and B's, basically. So it was just like if somebody said you normally checked on them, but you didn't always check on them, you didn't get points for normally doing it. You only got points if people said you always did it. So the score becomes a percentage of people that scored you that high. So it, it's sort of the reverse. It's if you don't get enough people scoring you that high, it counts against you. You can't say, well, you know, 60% of the people gave me a C. That doesn't matter. It's who gave you an A and who gave you a B. Yeah. And then and now it's more of yeah. Right. So that was the blue. I'm oh, sorry, no, that was the red. That was the that was a red. Red and the green. The, red and the green. Yeah. Yes. And then and then what she what Tiffany's saying is uh, uh, beginning now because that was confusing to people. Kind of good example now. Uh, that they went with the scoring system of, you know, three out of five based off of the scores or or, or three stars, two stars, one star. So you could tell people knew I have a five star system if you're one star. It's not good. If you're five, that's good. If your top box score is 20% or 60%, what does that mean? Like, it, it doesn't sound good, but, but if everybody's at 50 and you're at 45, then it's actually pretty good. So, so now with the star rating, it's kind of a little bit clearer, clearer, clearer not, still not clear. And, and so you'll, you'll recall this room in the first presentation that David and Kieran gave you on um, uh, risk uh, based payment or population, I forgot what we called it. Um, and she showed this, like, how the scoring for how we get paid or reimbursed happens. What, what Tiffany's saying is that the, um, the patient experience part of that will always be, or is expected to always be, a quarter of the, the payments that you have at risk, a part of that system. So, so that was, that's a purple one. The CJR is specifically about joint replacements and how you are reimbursed. So what CMS has said is across the world this, or a country, there's too much variation in the cost for joint replacements um, uh, throughout the country, and we're going to stabilize that. So everybody who gets reimbursed, unless you're in a special already sort of a risk-based program, you're going to be in this. And we're starting with making it mandatory for 40, was it, or 67? Yeah, 67 metropolitan areas. And the San Francisco area. Bay Area market is one mm -hmm. of them. So this is another thing that Karen and David talked about. So beginning in April, mm -hmm. when we get reimbursed, specifically from Medicare, for joint repairs, part of the calculation for how we get reimbursed and dollars that they will withhold will be connected to what's our patient experience and, and our ability to get those those withholding back. Just joint replacement or for this, they've just done it for joint replacement. I mean, there are other programs where if you were in like a Medicare ACO or some other sort of alternate payment model where you could be across the board at risk, this is pushing just this one initiative right. saying, now we're going to focus on this one and we're going to focus on a couple of markets now and the plan would probably be, if I read the CMS, that, that they're going to eventually make this mandatory across the country for anybody who hasn't gone into some other sort of alternate payment model for everything. They all go in, they all become a part of HCAP? She's saying HCAP factors into all Each of those, of those programs. programs. Those, are, of them. those are different initiatives and your patient experience scores impacts all, all of them. It's one factor in all of them. really is going into the big HCAP score. No, out. So the HCAP score is, is a component of Oh, of so all you get of an those HCAP score and they feed into those things? Yes. Correct. Yes. It's one component yes. of all of them. Okay. Yeah. 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 Right. So let me just add to uh, what Mr. Finley said. So the joint replacement program is five years. 
So it's, it's based on, because within the Affordable Care Act, there is the provision to implement value um, bundling payment. So this is the first program after the Innovation Center has piloted and they opted to officially launch this nationally, um, but it's at a selective market. Um, so what we see is a good news to further um, clarify top box and mean score. So mean score really is calculating on all the responses you receive. So top box is only the very best, right? So if you have an organization where we, we have a lot of goods and very goods, then mean score really is perhaps a better representative of your total voice of your patient, and this could benefit you. Um, could you remind us, um, money, you're you talked about money at risk. Yes. Um, yeah, how, how, I think it changes over time, but how much is it yes. risk? So there are different programs. Um, the CRJ, there's risk and um, benefits up to 3%, mm -hmm. and that's a very new program, but I'm going to advance this slide. The big money is this program, the value purchasing point. So this slide demonstrates from the inception of the program back in fiscal year 2013. So for patient experience, it's the green slice. It represents 30% of whatever your Medicare bucket. Yeah. Um, throughout the years up to fiscal year 2017, you see different colors. So the purple was the quality core metrics that CMS initially launched the 70% versus 30. And what happened is when you start measure and they're dollar tied to it, not surprising to y'all, folks start improving performance. So CMS start cutting its expectation on the quality portion and start introducing other type of domain. So they now have outcome-based measure, they have efficiency measures, um, so that, that's where you see the color. But what I would like to highlight is what you see is constant and remain throughout is the green slice, which is the patient experience. So into the strategies, if you're looking at ways how we can effectively you know, master something we already have, we have plans, we have resources supporting this, that would be one area that we would, I would employ you. Why? Patient status, it is so important. Not just for regulatory, not, not just for your strategic priority, but also you have dollars here, and it's again constant, remain on their radar. So that shows that, that evolution. Did I answer yeah, that your question? So. Yeah. All right. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I kind of squint and I can see it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, how do we measure <clears throat> um, patient experience? So I want to kind of share with you some of more the operational um, uh, things that, that Prescini provide on behalf of Alameda Health System. So in general, um, all the services that's inpatient, your ED, your ambulatory surgery, those are all encompassed under that first half. I will talk a little bit uh, later about medical practice. We use terminology that's consistent with CMS. In the Alameda organization, uh, your, what we call medical practice is your wellness center, your clinics. So for all the services minus medical practice, the surveys are done by telephone mode in both English and Spanish by live person. So we have actual person making these calls. Um, HCAT specifically, it, everything's regulated by CMS. There's specific communication guideline, when, how many, and so forth. So for those HCAP survey that's required, we have to make 
absolute five attempts. Call the patient. If they don't respond, we'll try it again next week. For other non-mandatory survey, we will make up to five attempts, if possible. And we do not leave voice message for the patient to call back because of HEPA for privacy rule, again, regulated by CMS. And we then schedule these calls. We kind of group them on a weekly basis. We have to strive a balance from the patient's perception. They don't want to be like, we don't want to fatigue them, keep calling them over, you know, for, for asking them to do survey. So that is the general uh, survey process. For the medical practice at your wellness center, um, this is done a little bit differently starting uh, the end of 2015. We survey the patient by postal mail survey, as well as any patient provides Alameda with a valid email address. We will then also send an e-survey. And the e-survey is not official CMS mode, but it's a tactic to help you get more data back so you have more meaningful data for physician improvement, coaching, and, and purposes. The surveys are both done in English and Spanish as well for the clinics. And the paper survey, we guarantee to send out the survey to the patient within 48 hours when we receive the record uploads from Alameda Health System. For electronic survey, oftentimes we send them the same day, if not within 24 hours when the records are sent to Presgany. Would you take just a minute to define Presgany? Absolutely. And, and then the relationship that Prescani has not only with our system, but perhaps, you know, in California or the United States, that, that kind of thing. So that yes. there, that would be helpful. Absolutely. I appreciate you asking that question. So Prescani has been in the um, measuring patients' experience for just about 30 years. Press Ganey actually was named by, um, after Dr. Press and Dr. Ganey. They were faculty members at Notre Dame University in South Bend, Indiana. And um, so there were a couple of professors got along and got interested in measuring. You know, they started with the consumer and then they got into the healthcare space. Um, we, by far, are the largest um, vendor in the space. We're not just in the United States, we have presence internationally as well. Um, we have about 1,800 hospitals within our hospital database. Um, so by far, we're the largest in that space. We partner with over 20,000 healthcare organizations. And we have about 135,000 physicians in our database. Um, so what we offer to our client is it's not just we're a vendor doing the survey. We really take in part of having interest, helping our clients to understand what patient's experience is about. Um, I personally am the patient experience advisor assigned to Alameda Health System. Um, I have quarterly calls, actually more than quarter, sometimes monthly calls with Kinsey. Um, we kind of look through data together, identifying what are the areas potential for improvement? What do I see as trends? So again, regions just do vend, uh, we, just, we don't just administer survey, but our goal ultimately is what you saw in the video. It's to help the provider to reduce patient suffering to provide more connected, compassionate care to enhance the patient's experience. The response to your question, Tim, is it correct that, you know, Pescani, as you said, has been in the survey business for uh, 
a number of decades, um, and you still offer sort of your own proprietary survey tool for which we engage you and other healthcare facilities and, and providers can engage you. But is it also correct that you are the designated vendor for HCAPS on behalf of the federal government? Yes. Okay. So we're both. So because we have been doing this for a long, long time, we have our patient satisfaction survey, which is proprietary, um, by far majority of our clients, in addition to regulatory required CAP survey, are also employing our patient satisfaction survey. If I may allow to take a moment to distinguish the two. Um, patient satisfaction survey on our questionnaire measures what we call the temporal experience of the patient. As Kenzie described at the beginning, it's before they even step their feet into our organization. Perhaps it was during the moment they start making the phone call, to make that first appointment, or so forth, all the way to when they leave our organization. So we, f- we ask questions following that process, how patients experience the care from the beginning to end. What CMS is using, the CAP surveys, they are very specific and they've documented actually, they're not patient satisfaction survey. They measure a very selective, specific aspects of care that they want to measure only. So a good example um, for um, the, I'll just use clinic, which is a little bit easier. In the clinic, we have um, admitting or your check-in registration front staff. We have our nursing staff. Then we have the physicians. Usually that's the team. In the outpatient CAP survey, there was zero question about nursing. There were only questions about access, about physician encounters, about the office staff, the front staff, but there was no question about specifically related to nursing. And that doesn't mean it's right or wrong. It just They have said it all along. They have specific area they want to measure. So throughout the various CAP survey within different care setting, they carry that same theme. And the, the main thing with the CAPs, it's mainly about communication. Mm-hmm. Nurses' communication, doctors' communication, right? Communication about pain, communication about medication, communication about discharges. Mm-hmm. So that is really where they focus. And so clients would leverage both sets, and, they, and often then they would take those feedback collectively, identify improvement. And so you not only meet regulatory for compliance, but you also meet your strategic goal. Uh, yeah, yes. I think so. That's very helpful. Thanks. Yes. Uh, question. So, did you consider uh, doing the survey in languages other than English and Spanish? Very good question. Um, so, for our proprietary surveys, we offer up to I think like 45 languages. Um, for for CMS, however, uh, they have their own rules. Um, so for for HCAP, CMS only has five approved languages in addition to English, and they are um, Spanish, Chinese, Russian, Vietnamese, and uh, Portuguese. Portuguese, yes, was the last one that was added two years ago. Interestingly, um, anything beyond that, it's not an official mode. And that's, that's their decision. Yeah. Um, a great question. Yeah, I was thinking in my travels through the system, I've been impressed by the diversity of languages that are Absolutely. Patients, um, 
speak. I think Alameda has an inventory. You have like like 42 different languages. It's a very diverse as a patient yeah. that you serve. Absolutely. Yeah. So is there a reason we don't do at least some of those others? You know, it's a great question. I don't know. Is, is, is there a price element? There, there's a price element. Um, there's also uh, not just the administrations. I mean, we can translate and do these. The limitation something is the phone survey. So mode, the methodology of survey does matter. So I guess we can do up to 40 to some languages in print. But phone's a different matter. So I use an example which is very relevant here in Oakland, Chinese. You have Chinese speak Cantonese. You have Chinese speak that's like simplified Chinese. You have Chinese that's traditional Chinese in writing and in dialect. So it's very difficult to administer survey in phone for those other languages at the time. Same thing with like Amon Indian. So there's there's some barriers. If we chose to do to do those, does that fall into the caps or uh, into the age caps or is it just the five languages that that yes. that they count? So for CAPS, CMS, and I do have a slide in a little bit, um, those are the five official languages. They do not really want you to survey in any other language for the official CAPS surveys. Okay. So if we did that, it would really be for internal. Right. Got it. That okay. you can augment. Right. Absolutely. Which if I may. Yes. Yes. Right. May I move on? Yeah. Thank you. All right. So furthermore on HCAP, because there are a lot of rules, I just want to kind of share this with you. Um, so CMS really only require each eligible hospital for this program must submit a minimum 300 returns per year. Now, 300 return per year is really, really small, if you imagine. But again, on the national picture, they have hospitals that are in various market, various sizes. The only exemption to HCAP is with the critical access hospitals. Those are the ones, 25 beds or less, a really small one in the rural town. But everybody else are required to do. So they set the bar kind of low. That will make, you know, enables everyone to accept the critical access hospital to participate in this program. There are some patients are excluded by rule. They are no publicity. Celebrity patients are allowed to be surveyed because they're probably a little bit biased. Um, obviously, deceased patients are excluded. No newborns. And then there's patients that individual hospital has been notified that you, they're restricted to receive a survey per state rule. And so the hospital will know who they are, and so then the clients, Alameda Health System in this case, will exclude those patients and um, do not upload those records to us. But CMS do ask, to, ask of the organization, you have to keep your documentation who you exclude for auditing purpose. I'd like to point out, I think the newborns do love us. And so <laughs> <laughs> we don't like that. It's Oh, it's, it's the goose and the guy. <laughs> and the drooling. And the drooling is really hot. And then once the rest of the records come to us, then as a certified vendor, and there are a few in the country, and by the way, HCAP can only administer by certified vendors. Um, hospital cannot self-administer patient survey to any point of the contact. 
uh, from beginning to the end. It has to through a third party. So we're, we're pleased that we are a certified vendor for all the CAPS um, requirements. So once the record come to us, then we will further it's our responsibility to determine patient eligibilities. And so we will then flag out adult patients that are discharged from inpatient but to nursing home or hospice or incarcerated patients, they don't get a survey. We will also flag out patients that do not have a minimum one night stay. So observation patients are not included in HCAP. They'll be included in some other buckets, but not for inpatient. And finally, patients that has um, a psychiatric, primary psychiatric MSDRGs will also be excluded. So that leads to um, what Alameda Health System is sampling. So I have this table broken out by the three hospital entities uh, and then by service line. So this is just giving an idea what is the monthly average. So frequently I get asked, we have X number of discharges, you know, several hundreds. How come we only have 139 surveys? So hopefully the prior slides that I've gone through give you some idea why there's some exclusion and, and ineligibility, um, as well as working with leadership to have a sound budget because at the end of the day, this is additional resources um, that you're all responsible to do. So we assist our client to come to what would be a reasonable sampling to ensure that the data will be meaningful for your evaluation and statistical interpretation. So what you see, for example, in an inpatient role across three entities is that that's the monthly average. Again, phone calls, that's because we do phone most. So those are completely surveys that we, we do on behalf of Highland, 139 and about 30 for San Leandro and 20 for Alameda Hospital. Um, and then the, for ER, outpatient, ambulatory surgery, uh, as well as inpatient rehab, those are based on what we call a sampling percentage. So again, that's based on what you've given us in terms of budget. Um, the inpatient psychiatric health, which is John George, is a little bit different. That particular care setting, um, we do not do phone nor paper. Because in general, there are some stigmatism against patients with mental health disease, as well as respecting of their privacy. We do not mail or make phone calls to the, the address or phone number of the record. Instead, what they will get is at the time of discharge, they will get a survey packet with a self-addressed envelope. And then they will fill out the survey wherever they are comfortable and mail that directly back to Prescani. And then finally, the medical practice, again, the your ambulatory care center, the clinics, um, we will send 25 paper survey per doctor per month. And then if we have an email address on record, um, a valid email address, we will then send additional e-surveys per doctor. So that's how we do the survey sampling. I'm, not certain. No, I, I'm sorry. I'm not certain I understand. You had the 300. You had a... The previous slide you had is it a minimum? Oh, minimum, mi minimum the annual hospital. Yes, the entire hospital, and those are monthly. So, yes. is there is then there's no maximum? There's no maximum, but so for the smaller hospital, we will actually try to make hundred percent of all your eligible discharge call for you. Because remember the up the five attempt requests, 
So the rule for CMS, we have to keep calling five times. And if there's no answer or decline, then that's when we drop. And then we'll pick up the next record. So the, the comparison then of uh, these are surveys you did or are completed? Yes. These are ones you did? This is the ones that we did on a, on a monthly average. And because it's by phone, so okay. the and, phone was And complete. then in a monthly average, how many patients would you have? I'm just trying to see relationships. Sure. So uh, in a month, the inpatients at Highland, what num that would qualify. What number might that be? So typically it takes eight calls, eight records to get one complete. So if, if you can roughly take how many times eight. So you have eight people in order to get one complete. That's the average. I so I would multiply that complete. basically by eight and then we yes. get my number. Yes. I say, okay. Yes. Yes. Um, I had a question. Um, go ahead. Compared to other hospitals like at UCLA's uh, or yours, is this a good sample size? Because so much depends on this the sample size, right? So, you know, actually, Tiffany uh, can probably answer this uh, better than I can, dealing with uh, broader swath of uh, clients. I think for us, um, it's it's a it's a from what I've seen, my experience, a reflective or. Um, size for safety net organizations. I think uh, in many cases, uh, some of the, um, uh, what do I want to call it, sort of comparative um, cost-benefit assessments that we're doing are relative to percentage of Medicare uh, um, uh, reimbursement we have and how much would be at risk uh, uh, to, to just be directly tied to the HCAP scores. And so, you know, you could spend a whole bunch of money getting a great score, and then your reimbursement is—it's you know, public. The the public value of that, you know, in terms of uh, optics of how you compare, are certainly uh, um, you know there's some value to that. But from a reimbursement perspective, there's a different value. Uh, and then there are some some dynamics with uh, some of the services that we provide and some of the. Um, uh, populations that we serve that make uh, sampling and uh, surveying uh, populations that we serve a little bit more challenging uh, than they are in some other more homogenous settings or more uh, uh, more sort of community-based uh, settings. That in this case, it's a little bit different for us because we have you know sort of different uh, swaths of that continuum throughout the system now. But I think that's you, that that sometimes becomes the uh, the differentiator. But the, the the reimbursement piece, I think, is still uh, relevant. But I'd, I'd, I'd ask. Tiffany, to, to add anything to that? Um, we look at a little bit, that's a very valid um, perspective from, from leadership perspective. From survey administration, um, just kind of give you a different lens. Um, on average, for inpatient, and this is all, not just for um, public um, safety net hospital, um, most, most clients, as well as CMS, they use paper survey. They don't use phones. I want to make that clear distinction. So for phone, I cannot say what's your percent of, of response rate because it's a completely different approach. Um, CMS actually will allowed for HCAPs, um, allowed um, paper, phone survey, as well as a mixture of the two. Um, email is not yet an acceptable mode for CMS. With that said, so for nationally, on average, most clients do use paper because that's the preference mode. Um, the typical response rate 
it's about 30% for each cap. For public safety hospital, usually it's in the teens. Just give you some comparison. And where we found with my other public hospital organization and similarly here at Alameda, for example, we monitor your bad, address, bad addresses. And that oftentimes, if you have gone to that route, um, that's why they have lower rate. But that it's a similar situation for phones, right? So when you give us phone, if it's a bad number, we cannot complete such call. So I think that's the common um, challenges for a lot of safety net hospitals. It's just different um, hospitals will have different mode, and most most clients use paper rather than phone. Phone also, um, from a cost perspective, it's more expensive because it's administered by a live person. Um, but there are trade-offs, and um, this is a, 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 the phone mode, this particular approach is, is something that um, that has been worked collaboratively together to develop this process, uniformly applied for all the hospital within the system. Okay. I'm sorry, I was just going to add though. So, so if you can think about it, one of the things that makes it challenging from an operation perspective to, to um, uh, sort of create actionable uh, um, um, intelligence around where the opportunities are. It doesn't make it impossible, but makes it challenging. It's if you look at, say, for example, Highland, or look at any, any one of them on the patient's record, when you break those numbers down to areas where the patients may have been served, so if I'm on a nursing unit, that 139, my percentage of the patients who might have uh, responded to the survey of that 139 may be five patients in a month. So it's like, how much actionable intelligence can I make in return to, with respect to improving service when I'm looking at five, five surveys. Um, uh, it makes it just difficult. Again, not impossible, but, but a little bit difficult to do. Uh, so, so just uh, some context for you there. Yeah, that's a great point. So what, what we introduced, why we introduced e-survey and what Alameda is now sort of piloting in the medical practice setting is e-survey is really very inexpensive. It's a very cost-effective way. While it's not an official mode by CMS, but to address um, Mr. Finley's points, if you can get more data points back, that allows you to break down the data at your unit or clinic level or the doctor's level. And that's when you can have a breakthrough because now you have enough intel to drive specific performance for specific settings or, or whatever breakout you have. Okay. Yeah. I just have one quick question. The protocol that you use for um, the patients at John George, is that is that protocol per CMS or is that? Right. That particular survey right now is not in mandate yet. Okay. So that is a Prescani proprietary survey. I see. And that is something, the protocol is based on our research. Um, so everything that we do at Prescani, it's vetted through Science. We have a team of PhDs that does nothing but psychometric tests and various analysis and studies. Um, so that particular survey communication okay. administration protocol is based so through those science and research. So that discharge you find is the best, most reliable yes. way of doing it? Okay. Yes, and I would say John George, um, <clears throat> um, Guy, um, they have done phenomenal. They have very high capture rate, mm -hmm. um, and they also have used that really for their improvement. They have very high performance rate. Did I hear you say that that uh, Pilon, for example, couldn't couldn't pass out the paper? Right, because it's it's CMS mandate for H caps, so you have to use a certified vendor. Okay, so 
when you say a certified vendor, you couldn't then, as the certified vendor, Press Ganey, right. put confidential sealed things to hand to a patient that that come from you. So all these administrations straightly come from us to the patient. Alameda Health staff has no hands, no involvement at all. So we get a digital fee from Highland, from Highland or whichever hospital. No, I, I, think, oh, I, I, think I, I think I understood oh, that part. Okay. What, I'm, what I'm wondering is if, in fact, you know, let's say it was the way in which uh, a mail is certified to the U.S. Postal, you have to assume that the postman doesn't open your mail because it's, it's sealed and certified. In the same way, I'm thinking that Press Ganey could, in fact, be providing hospitals with closed, you know, sealed documents that can be, can be handed by an employee who has no idea what's in it. There's no... You know, they haven't touched it, so there's no influence of, of any way. It's still coming through the administrator. The only difference is, is that it's being, it's being handed. So, if, again, for a regulatory program, that's not allowed, permitted by CMS. Hmm. I think there might be an element of bias that comes in. Your clinician or your nurse is handing yes. you something and saying, you know, you better complete this or, or, or not. I, I don't know if there's just that. I think that's, that's yeah. certainly yes. a concern. Yes. I, 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 I can that's see that concern. Yes. But, but it, yeah. Even, even for a psychiatric patient, again, that's a, a unique situation. Um, we we um, specifically ask our client not to have their clinicians their nurses, doctor, therapists to hand the survey to the patient. The survey should be handed out as somebody else that's not intimately involved with patient's care at the time of discharge to hand it to the patient. So there's, there's, there's actually research and science to separate that role. So again, to, to your point, yes, it's not to create undue bias. Okay, I won't comment. <laughs> if I could. Yes. Uh, earlier, I noticed that to, uh, eligibility, you can't be a psychiatric patient, patient currently. For HCAP, yes. But you said earlier that in 2018, you anticipate that they will be surveying psychiatric. Right. It will be a separate psychiatric CAP survey. So that will be a different survey. Oh, okay. But considering how good we are at John George, we, that will help us. We're anticipating yes. that, right? Yes, we anticipate you're yeah. going to be top performer, make right. everybody eat your dust. Cool. And that means my <laughs> Is that allowed to say? <laughs> That's good. Yes. So, yes, this is for inpatient HCAP, and being John George is a separate license. So that's a separate survey. My pleasure. Uh, yes. Could you speak a little bit about, you know, I, I'm, always, I, I'm always interested in the haves and have not concept of our country and those equity issues. And what, what is, in communities where they are much more transient, that they do not necessarily have access to um, stable home places, etc. How how and and if our you said our safety net hospitals were in the teens versus versus the other hospitals that were in the higher numbers, uh, is there any 
What's the factor? You've got next slide. Okay, great. <laughs> Thank you. No, great, great, great question to lead into the next slide. So yes, this is very frequently asked um, because we do have hospitals that have different patient mix, we call them, and there are some of these attributes or characters that are not within the hospital's control. For a public safety net hospital, we have more indigent patients, patients of just diverse background. So CMS has actually done research, and I shared the paper with um, Mr. Finley and, and Kinsey um, on this particular important topic. Um, so essentially what they do is these are the defined um, variables by CMS where they will make what's called patient mix adjustments, so education patient self-rated health ratings that directly come from the survey itself. It's at the very end called about you section, which is also why it makes the survey so long. It asks about patients to rate his or her own health in general uh, health, mental health, ask them about school education level, I'll ask them what their primary language speaking at home. We already know their age from the patient demographic area. We already know what type of services they receive from us, whether it's medical patient, surgical patient, or maternity patient. And then the other final element is what's called response percentile. What that means is there's also research done, again, at Prescani, but as well CMS, that um, patients that respond later the longer time from their discharge tend to have less favorable responses compared to the ones that immediately respond to the survey. So CMS will look at all these mixed factors from the total hospital sample group in their entire database. Prior to each public reporting, they will calculate the correlation values and then they will apply these adjustments accordingly for each hospital within the entire database. So ultimately the goal is to through this equalizing me mechanism so that they can have more of a fair comparison between the hospitals. Thoughts? That's okay. No, I mean, I, I understand those factors that I think are, are really good. I mean, they're good factors. I'm not right. Sure that. Right. I the, I, I would be interested to see the relationship between... Yeah, so how does that apply to your reimbursements and your... Right, so what it is is they will apply the adjustment into the score itself. So, uh, so for uh, example, hospitals that have no OBs versus a hospital that they have high percent of maternity patients, typically patients that have a baby at the end of the discharge and they're very happy and they usually rate the hospital very, very high experience. So CMS will again take this, um, what they call the top box and the bottom box and they do an average and they will derive a value, a calculated value. And then they will go back, look at all the hospitals based on, in this case, your service line mixed. They will apply that value to make adjustment. Another example I give you, again, it's very relevant in the Bay Area is, for example, language. They also know, and again, we independently have done studies, um, Hispanic patients, speaking patients, typically are more favorable, giving more favorable responses versus the Chinese, typically are very stringent on how they respond to surveys. And so they will look through those factors and then apply those adjustments accordingly. And in, in that adjustment process, each of these variables will have what's called a preference mode. So 
the, the language, English would be the preference. So if Spanish is typically more favorable, it's like a two points, they will deduct two points. Chinese are usually more stringent, so in that case they will add whatever variable points. Um, for uh, service line, they will use medical as the reference point. So CMS actually didn't need specific steps to go through these calculations. Is that why we don't survey in Chinese? <laughs> Um, no. Sorry. I don't know. That would be a Mr. Bailey question. No. no. But no. so even if you don't survey in those approved languages, what does it get English survey? And so hospitals get to see that um, that may, the their their compilated their gross compilation. You know, I mean, all that has come together to give them some kind of net score, right? That's correct. That's correct. And so, do they get to see the the percentage of how that how those things compare? Uh, I don't believe in no. your quarterly report they give no, you. We so we we kind of have teasing this. That's their secret sauce. They tell you what it is, but they don't they don't give you those actual um, numeric values. Um, and part of the reason is they do this every single time they update hospital compare. So those values are constantly changing because you have communities across the country. Maybe at one time it's maybe you know majority Caucasian, um, but half had large, like in Minnesota where I live once, they have a certain town had large influx of Hmong population. And all of a sudden that changed that community dynamic and changes social economic factors. So um, if you have those values given one particular period, it will become irrelevant for the next. So CMS always update this. So this is a great uh, segue into how we measure up. So this slide shows the example of, of this is actual data from Hospital Compares website for the question rate the hospital 0 to 10. This is your um, measure that you use for your true north. This particular data was, uh, the data reporting period is from April 1, 2014 to March 31st, 2015. So, so this is what I went last week and, and harvest out of the Hospital Compare website. What I want to point out is you notice um, there's a significant lag time. So while this is real-time website, it takes CMS on average about a year to maybe six, you know, uh, 14, 15 months for it to do its calculations, prepare them. They do give the hospitals an opportunity to preview the data 30 days before they put it on the public website. Um, but within that preview report, it doesn't go down to the level specifics in terms of adjustment variable values. Uh, it will just let you preview what they're about to um, display. So on the screen here, you see the top portion are the tables. Um, uh, CMS always, when you select a hospital, always compare that hospital as well as the state they, they're in, as well as the national information. So it's always come in three, three columns. And then you can also look at them by um, bar chart. So the blue is for Highland Hospital. For this particular question, at this current given time, based on the date, the date period April 1, 2014 till March of 2015, Highland's top box score for rate the hospital was 60%. And then this, the first yellow bar, in the, the one in the middle, that's the state of California average for this particular question in the same period. 
And then the yellow bar to the far right is the national average for this question for the same period. Yes? Um, and that basically means that some of the patients scored us 9 or 10, right? For this yeah. particular question, the rating 0 to 10, only patients give you 9s or 10s are deemed as top box. So 60% of those patients gave us nine. Or, that's not the percentile, but that's the... Right, that's yeah. not the percentile. Uh, in this program, they don't look at percentile rank. On the next slide, which I'd like to show you, it's when they introduced the star rating that I mentioned. This was launched last April. So the top box score we're ringing, so in this example, what you see is I pull all three hospitals, Highland Hospital, Alameda, and San Leandro. And then the two to the right are the California and National Comparatives. Um, and the row two is the question, patient that gave the hospital ratings of nines or tens on a scale of zero to 10. And then the last row is the question about would the patient recommend the hospital to their families and friends. So those are the performance score, again, by top box methodology for each of the hospitals with an Alameda system compared to the state and the national. So the difference is that when they introduced the star rating, is they added those little yellow uh, stars on the five. So the black is nothing. It's the star, the color, yellow color star. That's what, what they added. So a 71 would be three? So, uh, not quite. They also have complex formula how they calculate star rating. <laughs> so if you kind of remember earlier, I said the, the question, the measure itself is using top box. But the star rating, they switch to mean mm. score. So they're actually two different calculation methodology. And so CMS went back, they go through each uh, responses for each question. They look at your distribution responses, so never, sometimes, usually, always. They will take that and derive a linear mean score. And then they will then apply what's, uh, what they call cross-cutting, a cluster technique. They look at the, all the national performance, determine the clusters, and use the cluster to create uh, cutoff points for each star. And that process is repeated every single time they update the web page. So it's also dynamic. And that's refresh every time they do the, they do the uh, uh, public reporting refresh on the quarterly basis. Each time you see it will be a rolling four quarters worth of data. And that is already the, 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 the exceptions that you showed earlier. Yeah. That's already rolled into this. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. I have a question yes. more for Delvecchio or Kinsey, but is this granular enough to be sort of operationally useful? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you had to ask that question. Uh, it is and it isn't. So the, uh, the point that Tiffany just made, I think, is, is always the, the biggest um, uh, challenge for providers is that the, the data that's presented is always about a year and a half behind. Yeah. So you're looking, by the time CMS crunches all this data and gets the scores posted on this website, you're looking at what your performance was a year and a half ago. 
So you're not really sure if that's still your performance and how you're still being rated, or if things you've done in the intervening time would have reflected a different score, and you're always going to be finding that out a year and a half later. Now, it is, correct me if I'm wrong, it is a case, though, that we, while this takes a year and a half to get posted, I think we have, we get it, like, don't we get it a little bit sooner, like a, a year or something like that? Or maybe this is when we get. Yeah, you get thirty days before they release. Thirty days it. before. So right. Just, right. So, so again, it's 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 informative. It's certainly interesting. It's certainly important for us because you know, for consumers, they want to they see this and they don't always say, oh, but that was a year and a half ago. Maybe they're great now. This is just this is what they have. This is the best sort of uh, standardized uh, available data for anybody to look at. So it becomes important to us from that perspective. But from the perspective of sort of making it actionable to improve performance, it it diminishes its value. The other the other product that Prescani offers, which Tiffany was talking about, uh, is their their more um, timely survey and that's they're more sort of uh, it could be more tailored uh, survey that becomes that has a greater value from a sort of a concurrent um, uh, performance improvement basis. The challenge though is that that doesn't if, if you're let's where, where the data is required for caps, if you're stun, stellar on that, and it's not reflected here, it it helps you. You know, this is why you see things where people say, you know, our our hospital is like number five or number four, or we have top scores, and and then you look at something like this, and you're like, no, you're you're the same as everybody else, and you would find that in our case, in our market, for a lot of other facilities that you would think are also. You, know, you may think that some other facilities in our market are five-star hospitals or four-star hospitals based off of sort of anecdotal evidence that you have. But if you look at this website, which they allow you to do, I think, three or four at a time, yeah. Yeah, you can three. pull them up and you'd see that their scores are just about the same as ours in some cases mm -hmm. uh, and maybe one more star mm -hmm. different than ours and, and others. But you don't have... You know, really off the charts, except in the few few instances. Like for California, I, I looked this up while we were talking. Of the five-star hospitals, after the star rating came out in California, of 298 hospitals, three of them are five-star throughout the entire state of California. Um, One so is a 10-bed surgical hospital. Oh, for At the wedding. Because yeah. I looked, I'm like, what is that hospital? Yeah. <laughs> so, so it, it is in fact the case, though I should say, to full point of uh, balance that that the 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 mode or what is it? Mode is the most right. You know, it's my statistics uh, being challenged here um, is uh, three star. Uh, but the difference between three star and two star is 114 hospitals were two star and 119 were three star. We just happen to have three that were all two stars uh, in, in this uh, in this. Uh, set of data. Yeah, so again, they use cluster methodology when they compute and do the cross-tabulation. So what that means is you're going to have, again, standard deviation. Most of them are going to fall in the middle, in the three. Right. It's not intended to have all five stars. Um, also, that just, you know, some of the national, well-known well -known healthcare organizations, you know, like the Cleveland Clinic, places that we think to associate, like, five-star, they're not five-stars in this methodology. I, just on the five or the year and a half ago to the question, we, I'm getting C, uh, CG CAPS data in my email that appears to be from three months ago. That it's that they're still open because we haven't, you know, finished the surveys. 
that stuff. The, the information that we are sending to you, this is more current than this information. So you will see this is from October 10, um, 2012. Right. Through, but what we sent you But is, you get, we do yeah, get more current information. We get it from Press Ganey. And that data, though, uh, as, you, as you see when you just, you just pointed out, uh, because of survey cycles, uh, Correct me if I'm wrong here. Survey, uh, Press candy tends to do two. They'll do it by like sort of uh, the time in which those discharges occurred, and then another slice is the time in which the responses came back. And so, so sometimes you'll have a window that's open that says, you know, we haven't finished completing or closing that period yet, yeah. but. You know, here's a snapshot of where you are. And again, that what you're looking at is press gainy, not not the H cap scores. So, okay. Go ahead. But no, we, please. It's information we can add. Correct. Yes. Correct. So that Just was my this. question: was that in, even though CMS data comes out late, but you have the top and the mean score that you can tell Kinsey and um, uh, Mr. Finley about, like these yeah. are how many you are getting top, this is the mean, yeah. you can tell us, right? I think it's helpful if I um, further explain the, so this is public, I just wanna show, this is what CMS calculates and put out. Now, as Mr. Finley pointed out, if you wait for this, then to determine, you know, if I use this kind of simplified example, you're preparing for a marathon competition. If you wait for a public record to use that information to gauge how fast you should improve, how you should improve, it's too late. That information is like looking through rear, rear view uh, mirror. So what we provide really the greatest value aside that we administer survey is our database. And as I said, we have 1,800 hospitals in our database. And that represents a significant percent of the hospital in the country. So what we provide, when we send the data back to the client, we also compute what's called percentile rank, a ranking where you, either the hospital or a doctor, where you perform in relative to a particular peer group. And one of the peer group that information we will give you is the national peer group of all the clients that we have in a particular service. So all the hospitals that we have, all the clinics that we have, or all the doctors that we have. We can even break out to all the internists that we have. So it's through that particular value data that you can look at in real time where you are against, again, a particular group, a particular whatever subset, and that will, that is really the intel that you want. We also have done study oh, that. Excuse me, directly related to patient satisfaction? Absolutely. Okay. It's all related to patient satisfaction. Okay. We do have other product. But, that, that's okay. but this is patient satisfaction. Um, and then through that, we we done study how close our database, in terms of our uh, percentile ranking, our clients does uh, their top box score, compared to what public compare. And through our study, we found that our database, in terms of each individual question, comes about one point from the official score. So it's very, uh, it's highly reliable as a predictor where you may fall for top box performance. So Delvecchio, how many tools or measurements do we use to assess patient satisfaction? How many different? They just use, for inpatient, they just use HAP only. For the others, they use the Prescani proprietary survey. So for, for um, uh, 
psych for acute briefing. For ED, emergency yeah, room, ambulatory surgery, outpatient. Uh, maybe I, did my, I didn't ask the right question. Um, I, I was... I understood that you, because this data is a year behind, right. mm -hmm. that it doesn't necessarily serve as a good administrative tool for working with employees and, and the medical staff to improve their care of the patient satisfaction. Right. Okay, so I was that I was interested in is are there other tools in the organization or other measurements that you're using? So yeah, I, here's I know what you're asking. If okay. I name um, Tracy Lawrence, this is just public. So as soon as we administer survey and collect the data back on HCAP, we immediately turn that back to the client. They have that data within 48 hours when we receive the survey back. That is real time. From, so, from from inpatient, as example, from all, all the services. As soon as we collect it, okay, from all the services, mm -hmm. but in the numbers that you showed. So we will get information back from 139 mm -hmm. patients as they come in. As, as they, yeah, as yeah. they come in, as they come in during the. So every day yeah, they'll so get updates. Day, maybe like one oh, every day, in, yes, yeah. it's real time. Right, live data. Okay, and so, so and that the, what's the the it, here's what here's what I'm and because of my brain and public ed, so forgive me. <laughs> I mean, okay. I just but you know, in schools to evaluate the success of a system, you know, you look at the SAT scores, you look at PSAT scores, mm -hmm. you look at advanced placement scores, you look at dropout rates, you look, and, and it really is design. And I want to say dropout because that shoot, went another way. Th these are all academic scores, and then you look at the state the state test, etc. So, and in some, they measure different things, but you can see a trend in all of them. One might be down, but the others are up, and so you get a better sense of the whole. Sure. So I was trying to see is what you use to get a sense of the whole. If this doesn't give you something for a year, and you're only getting those things, you get them back, but Unless you're, calc unless you're showing some trends with them, it's just information you're getting back. I mean, it's, so, so what tools are there? Am, am I asking the right question? Yeah, I, I, okay. I think this is great segue. We have next slide, and which Kinsey's going to address how they monitor and trend the performance and how they use the information okay. for improvement. But, but, but if I'm correct, I think so. what you're saying is that basically we get we get we get survey results on a real time basis. Mm -hmm. It's not it may not be exactly comparable to the officially published results, but it's darn close and it's not with a year lag, it's with right. a one day or two day right. lag. But you get right. the survey result of an individual. But we can aggregate those, yeah. right? Yes. So, so what we tend to do is aggregate them over the course of a month. Because that's when you have enough of a representative sample to do anything about right. uh, and or to right. make any sort of assumptions. And so now you'll see. Remember when she was showing you the, the monthly numbers that we have? So now you'll see what they what we look like on a month-to-month -month basis, and that's what uh, we track. And those numbers, so what I was saying earlier is those numbers can, like we'll have a number for one month, and then two months later, that number could change, that overall score could change because surveys from that period came in a little bit later. They're still coming in. But they still give us a 
relatively rough estimate, because it's just going to be a few more laggers. It's using a lot of the preponderance. Let me give you a rough estimate of what your numbers are going to look like, and that's what we trend over a month to month, and then those quarterly uh, scores that are a year and a half behind show up on a public website a year and a half later. But this is what, you'll see what we do on a month to month basis I with see. this now. Okay. Sorry to check. So this is Highland Top Box. <clears throat> patients that rated us 9 and 10. So you can see fiscal year baseline for Highland Hospital and the middle <coughs> yellow is the target, our goal uh, for fiscal year 16 and year to date where Highland actually, where patients are, um, are rating the hospital for 9 and 10. So improvement, you can see Highland improved from baseline. And, and this is through November, year to day through November, and the month of November is still preliminary because it's not close, because surveys are still coming in. Okay. So just to help solidify, remember earlier I said we make up to five attempts. Those calls are made on a weekly basis, so I think that's like five weeks late time. So therefore, any uh, data that's coming in um, within the first two months, I think Alameda calls them preliminary data, yeah. and then only two months after the discharge, then it's called final data. So the proprietary, thank you, this is very helpful. So the proprietary um, survey that Press Ganey puts out, can you give examples of some of the questions that might be before, you know, before they come, during, you know, sure. you talked about before, sure. during, and after. Give me a couple examples of, because basically, while you are in fact measuring by month, you're still using one tool. Correct. Yeah, for patient experience. For patient experience. For patient experience. And other stuff. You're, you're right. Different tools. Now, I do want to make one distinct clarification. For inpatient, Alameda Health System for all three of the hospitals is only using HCAP survey question only. They're not using Preskini proprietary question. That was a decision made by, oh, oh, yeah. Okay. So but in general, to give you an example, so um, I'll give you an example. A lot of the organization will use the zero, the rate the hospital or likely to recommend as the global metrics, sort of like your true north, because that, that's outcome-based, right? So within HCAP only, um, for nursing, there are three questions. Courtesy and respect to the patient. Were the nurses explain things that you understand? explaining, and did the nurses listen to you? Those are the three questions related to nursing. As a matter of fact, there's the same three questions for the doctors. However, if you were to use a Preskini proprietary question, we will have additional questions. So the one that comes to mind is the skill of nurses, or the way the nurses respond to your request. Not if they respond to your call button timely, but how they respond. So. CAP's question typically will ask, again, very specific um, behavior, but the rating scale itself is measuring frequencies. How often does something happen? Did it never happen? Sometimes happens? Always happens? It does not ask the quality of the interaction. It's asking the frequency. Mm -hmm. So for pressing any question, um, for those clients that use both sets, they sometimes say, no, well, I'll use it again. The clients don't have press gaining. They say, hey, on our rating scale, nurses section, the scores are trending up. They're looking great. 
why are are likely to recommend or rate the hospital not so hot, not so hot? This is where I can use the example looking for clients. I use both. They say, well, yes, while you may always respond to my question, explain the question to me, but you explain in a way that make me feel like I'm five-year-old in a condescending way. Or you may come explain the question to me and listen to me, but you know what? You're horrible in terms of your <laughs> skills. I get poked numerous times. But HCAP do not ask such questions. They do not measure those. But if you think from a patient's perspective, you're going to ask me, would you rate the hospital? Would you recommend the hospital? I don't just think about how you communicate. I also remember you poked me. I still had these bruises on my arm. And if I don't think your skill's too hot, therefore I may not recommend. You two are fans of family. So there's those distinct differences. Um, so then again, that, that's how they're different. And therefore, how some clients have opted to do both sets of questions. So for the uh, every care setting in, with an Alameda, with the exception of HCAP, the hospital, as well as the clinic, um, everybody's doing proprietary, but clinic and hospital are doing HCAPs only. Great. Thank you. I have a question. Sorry. Uh, first of all, um, thank you. This really is helping me understand something that I didn't even under know how little I understood about. <laughs> it's my uh, pleasure. But question, probably more again for Kinsir Del Vecchio. Um, so I, I look at, for example, this, and you know, trend. We seem to be trending around low-ish 60s, 60s here, mm -hmm. and the goal is to get to 73 and a half. Mm -hmm. And I'm not quite sure how to ask this question, but how hard is that? Is that like insurmountable, real hard, no problem at all? Um, I just don't, you know, I, I don't have a sense we, of, we actually, of, of how hard that is. We actually asked Prescady how hard that is. So they, they went back. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> yes, bring it on. Because when uh, we were setting the goal for 73.5% top box percent, we um, partnered with Prescady. And it was very interesting to partner with them because then they went through this process. They have a huge database, and they assisted us in telling us you can only move this much in a year when it comes to scores. So um, I would let Tiffany talk about how they um, their recommendation about you can only move this so much because their data shows hospitals with similar performance can move, let's say, 2 to 3% a year. So I would let her sure. go through the process. Yeah, right. Yeah. So for, for this we call goal setting, um, again, we leverage this tremendous uh, database that we have. We analyze the movement, how much of a movement um, of these hospitals based on hospital performance. So in general, we know it's much easier, this is just general principle, it's much easier to, to have greater rate of improvement if you're at the bottom. Just easier to improve, and those will have drastic increases your percentage rank. But it's when you get to the elite top perform, performing level, it gets increasingly, or sometimes exponentially, much harder. And I'll use the example I like to use, um, uh, Michael Phelps and what was the other guy? Um, Dave, David Lockie, the two swimmers? I use that analogy very frequently, people understand. The gold medal was determined, it ultimately was by computer, 
And the difference was like one one hundredth of a point, and that determined number one and number two, right? So again, in the database, most time it's standard deviation, but we have seen with CMS um, emphasis on quality improvement, we're seeing that curve shifting from the standard deviation to curving to the right. People are accelerating because there's VPP dollars to it, right? They're skinning the game. So that is shifting. So the rate of acceleration is faster here at the bottom, and the rate of acceleration is increasingly difficult for those top improvement, just like the, the Michael Phelps example. So when the came, goal setting came around, um, Kenzie consulted with me. So we, I gone back and look at our database, and the way we look at it is we will break Everybody in our inpatient, for example, their performance down to what's called deciles, so these are statistics, into 10 pieces. So we group those are similar with your performance, rather than saying, you know, we're going to be the microfelp of the world, which is kind of way too, <laughs> too dreamy. Um, but we, we need to set stretch goal, but realistic practical stretch goal. That's not going to demoralize our staff. So we go back, and I assist the Kinsey. I went back to look at hospitals that perform in the similar decile range as Alameda's historical data. And then we look at how much of movement within that particular segment, and how much they move in the one year when the most organizations set goal by year. And then we further look at, of those, how much they move, we segment out who are the top 10%, the top 30%, the top 50%, and within each of these subset, how much was the actual point of difference? And that's where we came back with a recommendation. And I believe the board adopted using the top 30% as the reference uh, goal for the organization. Yeah, I know our questions have probably thrown you off your, your I, I apologize. Um, because of the sake of time and we have a second agenda item, could you, I don't want to cut you off now, but if you could look at your, your slides and pick those things that you think are really the most critical for us to make certain we know, because I, we do have another agenda item okay. and, and we're running out of time. So what we will do is quickly actually show you the results of um, fiscal year to date for top box for every hospital. You saw Highland. This is San Leandro. And San Leandro is actually very close to um, the goal we set. We have some opportunities with Alameda. Next slide. And um, we can probably show, we can skip this and show the board this one, um, the next one. This, is, this, show, this graph shows the breakdown of individual um, wellness centers, and you can see the variations in performance. The next one is John George, and John George went from the bottom decile to the top decile in five years. They're actually sitting at the 90th, 5th percentile rank in the national database mm -hmm. among um, within, your, within your data. Prescreening database. And then, um, next slide. And what we would like to show is show you just one, if, if you have time, next one, next slide, please. This is our path to success to improve, this is, a, this is our map to improve patient experience. And what the green illustrates all the best practices what we have implemented. Yellow, the best practice, it's all showing yellow right now, but actually the top long one 
the yellow is the uh, best practices that are in process right yeah I guess the orange on the on the other oh. side or the goal are the best practices we plan to implement at these pair practices are known to drive uh, patient experience the um, and then right now we if you have time we would actually like to show you a short clip on patient experience and then that would end our um, our presentation, and we'll take any more questions the board might have. Uh, and the clip, that's fine. Yeah, okay. because then we have a, yeah. Okay. Th this has really been very, I think, I think everyone will agree this has been very, very helpful. So thank you so much. So we'll show you this. Uh, sorry.
one more slide, I think. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let, let, let Kinsey or Mr. Finland, if you have any question for me, I'm happy to. I, I'm sure we'll be having you back at some other point to, in, in our. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And so we're moving on to our second date. Um, and do you want to, or just move into to Mike, your presentation? Mr. Moy? Yes, I sort of a tough act to follow that. Um, yeah. <laughs> he, he just whispered to me, I, I, I didn't see any lawyers in that collage. <laughs> yeah, and, I uh, said they would have had a disclaimer at the bottom of their card. <laughs> yeah, make fun of the lawyer. Uh, okay, so uh, thanks very much for the uh, the, the time on the agenda. What I wanted to do was to take the opportunity just to follow up you know, with the uh, communication I'd sent out earlier that um, relates to this issue of the uh, governance options you know, for the healthcare for the homeless uh, program. Um, and you know, basically in that memo I sort of outlined you know, for you some of the basic issues, uh, what was going to be before the board in terms of their future collaboration with the board of uh, supervisors. So I just wanted, had wanted to take a little time in this particular meeting uh, to ensure that you know, we were sort of at the same place in terms of you know, understanding what was going to be before the board, uh, determine if there were any questions uh, that uh, any of you had regarding you know, both what the issue was in terms of you know, what's before you and then the process that we were anticipating in terms of dealing with the issues on a going forward basis. Um, I would like uh, to do two things to make an, an introduction and an apology. So from the county with us here today from the healthcare services agencies are Dr. Clannon, uh, Dr. Francis, and uh, Nancy Halloran. And my apologies is that I was a little lax in terms of coordinating uh, with them on this presentation, but they were able to make it here today. So thank you all for coming. Um, and uh, to the extent that, you know, if there are some questions they might uh, also pitch in to help out with the presentation here today. So, uh, you know, my plan is to really, you know, sort of focus on the process of what we're talking about in terms of getting from point A to point, you know, B uh, with this. And so I'll be, you know, covering specifically... <clears throat> You know, the issues which are related to why we're having to undertake, you know, this consideration of changes, you know, from a governance standpoint, uh, you know, what the implications are, and then the options that we're con uh, considering, and then the options that we are, you know, anticipating moving forward with on a going forward basis. So, you know, this relates to uh, the, you know, the, the basically uh, the health uh, care for the homeless program, which, you know, falls under Section 330H of the um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, uh, Section uh, 330H program. Uh, it's been operated by the county uh, since, or has been receiving funding since 1988. And um, at, in the past history of operating this program, it's a county program, the, uh, the county you know, uh, receives the grant. Uh, we're a sub-grantee uh, amongst, and there are several other sub-people uh, uh, who work with the county in terms of you know, providing these programs and services. Uh, up to 2014, there was a waiver that was available for both the county and us as a sub-grantee in terms of the governance requirements under the regulations uh, which govern the Section 330 programs. And essentially that waiver, you know, provided relief from the requirement in terms of a governing board structure which included, you know, members of the patient population which are being served by the program. 
Um, I make a reference there to HRSA PIN 2014-01, um, and this is a information notice from HRSA, which basically clarified what the governance requirements are for these types of organizations, and then outlined the types of procedures that could be adopted by organizations that were subject to the program that uh, could be adopted to satisfy the requirements. And essentially, um, as a uh, as a public agency, uh, meaning, you know, a public agency, you know, which is the grantee for one of these programs, uh, there are essentially two options that were made available or are available under the PIN, uh, and that is that the governing board of the public agency could satisfy uh, the governance requirements as set forth in the statute, or if the uh, public agency elected not to do that, then they could establish what's called a co-applicant co board. The idea being that this co-applicant board would satisfy the governing requirements and then together with the public agency, they would be the health center that was providing the services, you know, under <coughs> under the applicable regulation. And, you know, and the idea with you know, respect to the government is, is the notion that as each of these programs was designed to provide services to a specific segment to, of the population or for a specific uh, you know, health need, that the governing board should be made up of people who are sensitive to what that need is and ensure that the services are, in fact, you know, providing the sort of impact for the community that the uh, legislation intended. And you know, essentially, the government, or the the legislative intent behind the regulations is that to the extent that, um, you know, it was necessary to have the governing board reflect representation, you know, from that patient, uh, you know, community. So that's why we're talking about, you know, these issues. So <clears throat> as uh, uh, Delvecchi had pointed out, this issue, uh, we were aware of this issue in, uh, in 2014 when the uh, pin was issued indicating that this governance requirement was going to become effective. Um, and so the county has, you know, been, you know, I think working uh, with their consultants, uh, HFS consultants, you know, from that very time to explore options, you know, that could be implemented uh, to satisfy uh, the governance requirements. And we understood that at whatever time, you know, we were subject to a site visit from HRSA, uh, that this would be a finding that we would have to deal with and address. So it wasn't a surprise when the uh, August uh, 2015 uh, site visit addressed this particular issue. But it did increase the importance for us to have to deal with it at that point. So um, the co-applicant board, you know, appeared uh, to be, you know, essentially um, the vehicle by which we were going to meet the uh, or satisfy the governance requirements. You know, essentially the other option of direct satisfaction, you know, through the governing boards, neither the board of supervisors nor the board of trustees uh, are currently configured to satisfy those governance requirements, and it basically, you know, wasn't viewed as a viable option, you know, to seek to satisfy it in that fashion. Um, the unique problem that we, uh, and you know, I should you know, say, and as I put out in the materials there, uh, there are several other counties, you know, which are 330 grant recipients, uh, some of whom have already adopted co-applicant boards. Uh, the unique situation, you know, for you know, Alameda County is the relationship, you know, with the county and us as a public, you know, hospital authority, you know, both having, you know, a role in this 330 program. Uh, and so it wasn't a question, well, it could be potentially a question, you know, of each of the entities, you know, establishing a co-applicant board, you know, 
know, to satisfy the governance requirements, and that's certainly one option. But then you'd, you know, essentially have the Board of Supervisors, a co-applicant board associated with the county's program, the Board of Trustees, this other co-applicant board. So um, there, of course, were some, you know, obvious limitations in terms of adopting that route, but, you know, certainly one of the solutions that follows, you know, sort of strictly the regulatory requirements. Um, the other uh, option um, that, and this is the one that we sort of focus our attention on, is the notion of a joint co-applicant board. And this is a board which basically is a joint collaboration between the Board of Trustees um, and the Board of Supervisors to satisfy the governance requirements. Uh, it's patterned on, you know, the, the basic requirements for uh, having a co-applicant board and that there would be an agreement between the two organizations or uh, the two organizations would jointly collaborate on creating a set of bylaws um, and articles incorporation and the other uh, steps necessary to actually establish the organization to satisfy the regulatory requirement. So um, that is, was a recommendation, you know, from uh, the consultants, you know, who are supporting uh, the county. And we've had some discussions with the county on the joint co-applicant board, the feasibility of adopting that strategy, uh, both in terms of how it would work between the two organizations and our ability to actually implement it, uh, as well as the further question of really understanding whether or not uh, that particular vehicle would also satisfy the Hearst requirements, you know, because there is nothing specifically in the regulation which would adopt or address that particular procedure, um, you know, because we do have this unique situation. But uh, part of the due diligence which has been undertaken with regard to this is, you know, discussions with Hearst about how this unique situation could be handled and addressed under the regulations. Um, and we anticipate that in adopting this um, this particular uh, option and then going forward with it that it will you know ultimately receive uh, approval by HRSA is satisfying the uh, the governance requirements but that still has not been resolved but it's being worked on I think at this point um, in terms of the uh, <coughs> excuse me the uh, the actual you know co-applicant board in well, let me just you know, address, you know, I had included in here, you know, this is what some of the practice which is being adopted by um, the other counties that, you know, actually have these programs, San Mateo, Santa Clara, Ventura, Santa Cruz, and Solano. Um, and, you know, as you can, as, as I had indicated there, you know, these are all, it's basically a, a situation where these counties don't have to, the same issue as we in terms of having the two organizations involved, but these are just some of the elements that they've adopted in terms of, you know, how their co-applicant board, you know, operates. Uh, that last bullet point, which talks about, you know, the sharing of fiscal personnel responsibilities uh, under the various county agreements, you know, one part of the regulation um, that deals with public agencies establishing these co-applicant boards, you know, acknowledges or addresses the fact that, you know, the the legislative or, uh, well, yeah, legislative uh, and operational requirements of public agency, you know, place some limits in what sort of authority can be delegated, you know, beyond the entity itself. And and so specifically with regard to fiscal matters or personnel matters uh, where authority must be retained by the public agency, uh, the regulations make clear that no further action has to be taken by the counties to retain that authority uh, in, in the setup of their co-applicant boards. That's understood as part of the legislation. And so that's what that point there addresses. Yes, sir. Just 
just slow you down for a second and ask a dumb question. Okay. So regardless of what model we pick, um, the board has to include a percentage of the population that we serve. Is that still correct, or did, that, did I miss that part where that is not required? Well, the, the, so that segues sort of to the next slide. So the, the governance require, requirement is that it is a separate governing board, okay? There is still a waiver of the requirement that the board be comprised of 51% of the patient uh, population being served, but there still is a requirement to have representation of that patient community on the governing board. So uh, setting up this, you know, this co-applicant board, uh, there would need to be members or representation of the patient population being served, which is the homeless population, but the, the, uh, the majority of the board does not have to come from that patient community. So that part of the waiver is still available. So. Yes. Well, it, do, go ahead, John. I like that idea. So whatever we do, I think having representation from the population we serve is, is uh, I, I like that. Okay. So, for state my opinion. For, for other boards, other counties, you know, that that are doing this. I mean, how successful are they at sort of staffing the board or um, or, or fill, filling filling the board according to the the model? You know, I think uh, you know. I, I think that they've been able to address the requirement in terms of characterizing it as successful or unsuccessful. I I really do not know. I don't know if. Do, I, I think it's. Yeah, I, I guess my question is: Do they actually do this? <laughs> so, I'm the medical director of the Healthcare for the Homeless program and the interim director in Alameda County, and have spoken to some of my colleagues in other counties in California with co-applicant boards. This is a relatively new phenomenon. This regulation was just issued in 2014. Some programs had project officers that pushed these kinds of changes as early as 2011 or so. Um, so it's relatively new in many areas. Um, um, the, the programs that have been able to retain their H and their waiver are mostly not recruiting 51%. If, if they don't have to, they're not recruiting 51% homeless patients. Mm -hmm. um, but they're recruiting people who um, serve the homeless or who are ex-homeless and have a lot of experience with the population and they're able to successfully find uh, individuals like that. In many cases, the most committed and valuable board members are themselves uh, still patients of the program. So in Santa Clara County, their board chair is an you know, incredibly phenomenal individual, really inspirational, um, nationally influential really in the Healthcare for the Homeless program. Um, so I think you know, I, I totally agree that this is a great opportunity to get um, influence and input, and I think we have some models uh, nearby of, of folks who are really great board members. Yeah. And I, I'm not, you know, in my question, I'm not saying I'm against it, I'm just, I'm wondering. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's possible, it is, it's feasible, it, it requires support and effort from the program to really do that. It, it, you know, it requires time, energy, money um, to make sure that it works, but it, it's feasible and valuable. Yeah, and I think what you just said, I think, you know, it's like, so we need to understand what's the time, you know, is through the time and energy and focus and all that if we're going to do this right. Would you, would you guys mind coming up to the table? Yeah. It would be a whole lot. Yeah, we don't have to <laughs> twist around. If I ask why you're walking up. Oh. Yeah. Are we talking about... Uh, Should we introduce... Well, yes. 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 Uh, yes. Are we talking about the 3.1 million or are we talking about 19 million uh, over, overseeing expenditures of the 19 million or of 3.1 million? So we can clarify that. Uh, the budget. Let, let's start with the introduction and then we'll Please. 
So I'm Damon Francis. I'm the medical director and interim director of the Healthcare for the Homeless program in Alameda County. Nancy Halloran, policy director at Healthcare Services Agency and, and uh, the Indigent Care Division, which is where the homeless program sits. I'm Kathleen Clannon. I'm the medical director for Healthcare Services Agency, so the, the county, the relevant part of the county, and I'm uh, Damon's <coughs> boss. Okay. The, the question about the, which which pool of those dollars would this oversee is it? I thought it was just a pool one, but I'm not sure. It's it's neither, <laughs> which is even more challenging. It's um, the way that ERSA defines the scope is it's a homeless patient. It's a patient in the target population receiving services that are approved by the governing board at sites that are approved by the governing board. So the scope defines our reporting in terms of numbers of patients seen, um, the staffing, and the funding. So the actual scope that the co-applicant board oversees is homeless patients seen in ambulatory care programs at Alameda Health System and contracted sites that the county oversees those contracts for. Um, so the amount, our budget request for this year to HRSA was $14.5 million, um, which includes the FQHC revenue that came from serving homeless patients or patients experiencing homelessness, but does not include the FQHC revenue that Alameda Health System receives on the basis of this grant, but uses to care for non-homeless patients. Um, so will you say that, that again? Sense. Say that again. It's, I, it's, it's a little bit challenging. So um, the FQHC designation, Alameda Health System receives because it receives a, a sub-grant from the Healthcare for the Homeless program and because it meets these requirements. Um, that grant is to serve the target population of people experiencing homelessness. But once Alameda Health System sites get designated as FQHCs, they are allowed to bill at an FQHC rate for all patients seen at that site, not just patients of the target population. So the billing that is at risk because of this designation is greater than the size of the budget that the co-applicant board actually has has a window into, if that makes any sense. So then the co-applicant board could, in fact, so it's not a limited it's not a limited budget in which the co-applicant board might be making decisions relative to serving the homeless, but in fact that number could grow if you're meeting more patients, all patients. Is that? No. No. Do, it, my, it, it, I, I think to restate the question, actually, the, uh, the federally qualified health center that we're talking about, the healthcare for the homeless program, is part of a bigger federally qualified health center. It's is a is a service of a federally qualified health center, and that has a larger budget that's part of um, the county's FQHC. I think that's I think that's actually a somewhat accurate way of pointing uh, of it, 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 we would have to get into the regulatory agencies that oversee these different designations, but but for 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 your purposes these sites the ambulatory care sites that you all oversee are federally qualified health center sites, and those sites see patients and bill for services that are not included in the scope of our health care for the homeless program or the co-applicant board. And so, Michelle, and is your question whether the, the this co-applicant board has the authority over just the portion of the of the funding that is used to serve the 
health care for the homeless population. That's correct. Y yes, that, that was part of the question. And prob probably it would be easier for this feeble mind of mine, too. If you could, I understand the loss if we don't have some kind of new governance. I, I get that part. But maybe you could talk about what exists aside from the local, the joint governance, what what is currently being done and those dollars provided for the homeless and under this new this new waiver and or co-op agreement, what what are the implications? And I'm obviously because I'm a board for the Alameda hospital system, I want to make certain that I'm understanding if funds are going in a certain place, they're coming from someplace else. And so we're shifting priorities to another group that may, in fact, may need, in fact, need the services, but it, they, the money's got to come from someplace else. So I'm trying to understand how that domino falls. So we're, we're going through the process now of doing our uniform data system report, which is our report to HRSA. And um, the report is a good way of sort of thinking through the services we provide. So in that report and the funding that we tell HRSA goes toward the scope of services that we provide, we include the FQHC revenue for seeing any patient who's having an episode of homelessness when they're seen at an ambulatory care clinic. So that includes the FQHC dollars there. And that's effectively an integrated program with the rest of your programs, which makes total sense. Homelessness is mostly episodic. Many of your patients are homeless for three months and not homeless for the rest of their lives or, you know, homeless for six months this year and then two years later homeless for a few months. And so it's an integrated service. We need to report on that. We um, need to develop, one of the other things they found on the site visit was we need to develop ways to interact with the ambulatory care structure to make sure that we're doing things to improve the care of people experiencing homelessness within the ambulatory care structure. So we report on that and we interact with the structure that exists. Yeah. In addition to that, there are some specific services targeted toward people experiencing homelessness that are managed under the auspices of the Homeless Coordinating Office, which is uh, reports up to Holly Garcia. Heather McDonald Fine is the, is the administrator. She's my, the counterpart that I work with most frequently. And um, that Homeless Coordinating Office oversees the respite programs, respite care programs, where people who are discharged can be discharged to a shelter. They can get some you know, more intensive support services um, while they're at the shelter. Some care management programs that are more focused on homelessness, our new partnership on the mobile health program. So things that are actually more explicitly dedicated to populations of people experiencing homelessness. So within Alameda Health System, those are kind of the two buckets of things and kind of the way they're managed now. And there wouldn't be a, a huge change to the, to the management structure. It would, it would be that this co-applicant board has a window into that and an ability to, to, to have a back and forth conversation via the agreement that we define about how the population of people experiencing homelessness is prioritized, is worked with within, within the overall services here at Alameda Health System. Didn't you say that your program, though, is what's what allows us to do FQHC for all of the other patients? Yes, that's twenty that's million a year. Okay, I just so, and that is sure. a critical point to understand as okay. well. So it, it won't be in within the scope of what the co-applicant board oversees, but solving this issue has tremendous implications for the non-homeless population seen in ambulatory care clinics. So I'm glad you I'm glad you asked that question. I'm glad you all understand that. And and, and if my memory serves, it also gives us access. To you know, to drugs, for example, at a discounted rate. 
No, that's, that's, oh, is that something the else? 340B program. Sorry. And the, the 340B program is linked to receiving the 330 grant. So oh, I guess it is. For, for certain parts of Alameda Health System and not for other parts. So we oversee the 340B program for the outlying clinics for Eastmont, Hayward, and Newark. We don't oversee the 340B program here at Highland. Correct. So, so it's connected in that case, but we also qualify under a different. Uh, Clear as mud. Okay. Uh, 330H340B. I would really like the idea of the, you know, the consumer board because you really want to have the users. When we had the HRSA folks coming in, because ours is such a unique situation of having the board of supervisors, board of trustees, one of the things that they had suggested was rolling in the, if they were waiving the 51% consumer, rolling it into this board so it could be maybe part of the QPSC because the, the requirements for what that board would be, how often they meet their responsibility is pretty. So I, I like the fact that this is going to be its own independent board, but how did that decision come about that, that this is logistically a better option than having it be rolled into the, either the supervisors or the trustee? So um, I'd like to take that one. If, if, did I make my question clear or not? I think so, yes. Thank you. So, um, so as we were investing, we, we were looking for the Gordian knot solution, the thing that, you know, that would give us the most distance for the most simplicity. Um, in terms of your board becoming essentially the co-applicant board for this purpose, um, our board nixed that, up, nixed that possibility. And the reason for that was because one of the requirements for the co-applicant board is that it must be self-appointing. And that would mean that our board would lose their linkage to you as the board of trustees for that purpose, for the purpose of appointment. So that was a deal breaker from their point of view. And so at that point, we, we knew we were dealing with a separate board, and the only question was, would we have to follow, as, as Mr. Moy was saying, follow the, uh, the literal regs, which would say we would have to have two, one for each of our public agencies, or will HRSA, for us, um, allow us a unprecedented but very logical joint co-applicant board. So that's, to be really candid, that's what happened. The way it would work if this happens would be to be administered through Pixar? I mean, um, the, the, the logistics of managing that board comes would be happening there, here? Well, well, it would, well the board, it's a, it's a, the, the, Hicksa would not be managing the board. I mean, the board would be established, and then the you know the, the board would be overseeing the work, which is currently being done under the home um, healthcare for the homeless program, um, and that starts at the county. So the board would be overseeing you know the work that Damon is doing with that, and then you know the pieces that we have. In the new board, you mean? The new board, the joint co-applicant board. Yeah. So so they would be overseeing the work which is currently being done. As Damon had just described, by his office, by the, you know the various pieces of you know AHS, which contribute to that program as well too. So, and so what option are you? Uh, is there no option here that you're providing, or you're just saying this is what it's going to be? Well, no. The, these are the three options. The three options that 
Well, I thought one was out. One was already out because the the supervisors. Uh, well, well, okay. In in terms of how could this pro this issue be solved? You know, there's there essentially these three. Okay, now. Well, that that's yes, yes. that's the ideal. But now we've gone layers, we're peeling the onion, and we've taken some layers off. So what layer is, is still left? You know, primarily the, the joint or the joint co-applicant board option is the option. It's the only option available. You know, the other one is still an option available. It's just, again, to the, I'd never heard of a Gordian knot. I'm going to look that up and educate myself <laughs> later. But, but that is an option. An option is for both the board of trustees and the board of supervisors to create two separate uh, co-applicant boards, um, or the other option is to a joint one, which, okay. as I was saying, is, is uh, we, as we've been told, fairly novel, and we don't know f with, with any great certainty that, because uh, we're groundbreaking here, that this will be approved, but we do have some sense, based off of the work that's been done through our consultants, uh, uh, that, that this has a likelihood of being approved. So, uh, so there are two options, essentially. The other um, FQHCs in Alameda County, do they, are there other any? Is there any other um, yes. 330H nope. recipient? No more okay. No more ACEs. But the FQHCs are they governed like um, over 60 or um, or 51 uh, percent? Yeah. Yes. Are they are they over? So they have 51 percent. They're not. The, they don't just use their board of the or of the nonprofit to oversee the FQHC. That they, their yeah, because yeah, that's that's in essence that's all right. they are versus like with us we have the FQHC the Q. So the Family FQC. Bridges has they use their. Um, I'm not familiar with them. The FQHC. The like, Asian Health Services. Yeah, Asian Health Services uh -huh. access like Clinica. Uh, yeah. Right. I wonder if, I, if I could just um, insert into the conversation what might have been behind Trustee Luganini's question. So that um, the the costs of managing the co-applicant board, we are assuming will be on the county if there is one. If there are two, then we would manage ours and you would manage yours. But that but out of the the grant, you know, expenses that would come because there is cost and staff time involved in management of that board. But exactly how you know be, because the board would be looking at you know, the budget that you all will decide for the, you know, for your part of the program uh, and giving input on that, then we will assume in the writing of the details that have to do with the agreement between us, between our organizations, if you all go with, you know, a joint co-applicant board, we'll assume that, that, that those kind of things are going to have to be addressed. Um, and it's it, it feels like that the homeless program you know, is kind of it's a sort of an entity within the entity and you know so I assume you're going to be working on how to define the I mean th th those those borders or boundaries are always very very difficult in any yeah. organization to define so um, are you working on that? Some of the well, details sort of gets at it. You can go. Yeah. Well. Well, that would be you know part of the next steps. You know because the specific requirements you know for this joint co-applicant board would be an actual operating agreement between the two organizations that are making 
the, up the joint of it, if you will, uh, and it would, you know, outline the very, you know, issues that you're talking about. So that would be a collaboration between the county and us. You know, I think it basically is sort of designed to start with the meeting, which is scheduled for March 2nd in terms of, you know, talking about how that gets done. Uh, and then there's the uh, formulation of a set of bylaws, which would basically govern this joint co-applicant board as well, too. And again, that would be a, a collaboration between the two organizations to come up with the bylaws, which would you know lay out the authority of them. This you know all the same types of things we have under our uh, you know the board of trustees bylaws. So that process is envisioned as the next step. You know, basically, from as we move towards coming up with the plan to present to her, and then actually implementing that plan. And, and one thing, I, I, I just wanted to say. Um, you know, between the you know, joint board or two separate boards, um, I've kind of toggled back and forth my mind, and I think there are pluses and minuses to both. I don't think that there's a natural answer, at least in my brain, to that. So, uh, Thank you, Jim. Yeah. Tr trustees, this, uh, this item will be on the business meeting um, this month. And so what I would say, because, the, because of the time that we have, and thank you so much for, for coming. I'm sorry. I didn't see you behind me or I would have hurried up the meeting a little bit more. But, um, you, you know, to make certain that you get your questions answered, do your due do, do, do diligence because um, Del, Vecchio will, Del Vecchio will be, in fact, asking us for, for a recommendation on what we want to do at, at, that me at the business meeting in, in the 24th. And um, then just to close, I appreciate the presentation as well, and I think that actually the the solution is is a good solution. The the grant comes from to that comes to the county, and we're a sub grantee, so it makes more sense to me to, than having two board, two co applicant boards or having um, AHS be the co be the the board, the lead board, which obviously isn't going to happen. It makes more sense to have this. Um, this joint board, and I would defer to the Board of Supervisors as well because they um, are representing the constituents of the homeless program as well, and we're as we are. So I, I think that this is a good solution. I appreciate all the, the well, I don't appreciate all the details, but I appreciate the, <laughs> <laughs> the attempt to present the details of it. Well, I was listening to Mr. Moore presenting and saying, I don't know that I know anyone else that has that command of these details, actually. <laughs> having, having gone around and talked about this so much, I'm really actually impressed with um, really? what your staff is, is able to comprehend about this. But what I noticed oh, is that it, I bet he can swim underwater for a long way. He, <laughs> <laughs> he took no breath. I'm going to go hit some water. It just went, and I thought, gosh, he could probably go back and forth in a pool about 12 times. But he didn't miss a mark. I was no, listening the whole time. <laughs> in the interest of time, that's all it was. So. Uh, okay, well, did you see, and the timing to at least give the plan to HRSA is March, right? We um, are put on the timeline based on uh, when we receive our notice of grant award, which we thought would be in January and hasn't happened yet. The formal grant condition comes with our notice of award, and we get 90 days from then. We'd like to do it somewhere between 60 and 90. So that puts us right now, if we got it, end of April, early May, actually, when we'd, when we'd have to submit it. It has to be approved by our current governing board, which is the Board of Supervisors. Um, but of course, we'll, we're planning to bring this to the joint meeting um, so that you can discuss it together with, with both boards. Well, and then then ultimately, the formal approval will come through them. I have one more question then. If, it's, if the budget and the grant is approved by the Board of Supervisors, and will that continue? And then 
do, does the Board of Supervisors have, have to retain the authority from um, the federal grant to accept it? Sometimes these grants are, uh, uh, it may or may not be able to be accepted by the, the co-applicant board, or it may have to be accepted by an elected or a, a, another type of entity. So I would ask that question. Yeah, and, and I think that actually, you know, I had made the mention before about the the carve out for the co-applicant board, you know, not interfering with the, the, the legislative or delegated authority of the public agency. And so, you know, for example, if there was something like that, then, you know, basically the co-applicant board would send it to, you know, whoever it needs to, the, you know, trustees or supervisors, you know, and it would be approved in that fact. I, I think it's, that's actually one of the things that we would probably want to address in the operating uh, agreement because, you know, that is likely to come up in having a smooth, streamlined process to deal with it would be good. Great, Joe. Joe, you have... I just, have. it would be great before... <clears throat> I'd love more information about the success and, and how having consumers on the board has helped shape the actions in... Was it Santa Clara, you said? Uh, I, just, I mean, I think that's great. I really do. And um, my work with the homeless in the city of Oakland is on the other side of things is, is very challenging and it's, it's a, we've reached a crisis uh, in, in the city and in the state. Um, yeah, our unsheltered population last year went up by 45% and, and it's uh, not our homeless population but our unsheltered homeless population because there's just nowhere for them to go. Um, as all these homes have exploded and the, the real estate market has gotten so hot they can't squat, they can't couch surf so they're they're living under our freeways, and it's, 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 it's a really dire. The city council doubled the number of winter shelter beds last week, uh, and that doesn't come close to, to helping. And so I'd love to hear how this having the, the advocates or the actual population on the board has affected the policy decisions for the better. Yeah. Uh, is there any age limit to the service? I mean, it does it can – is it adult only or can sure. – yeah, for for. I'm thinking of homeless because I, you know, there was a whole lot of teenage homelessness that our kids were, you know, sleeping on the couches of friends, etc. Um, does this also serve any any age group? The the statute does not limit age groups. Um, our programming that's targeted directly toward homelessness is almost all for adults. And we report on some of the children or, you know, people in the teenage age group who are seen through Alameda Health System as well. So that those are smaller numbers typically um, that we're reporting on here. We don't have uh, – there, there tends to be more local funding and more state funding for family-oriented programs. Um, and so we tend to use our funding for a population that, you know, is, is neglected by a lot of other funding streams. Yeah, I, I would, uh, just based on my experience, I would guess that there are a whole lot of teenagers who have no, no ability or knowledge of, of the services that can be provided to them. I mean, I, and I just know that from experience. That, that's true. I think if you look at our transition age youth population in the behavioral health care services, there's a lot of homelessness in that population. Yes, it is. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to, yes. I just wanted to, one, I just wanted to uh, clarify the process just a little bit very, very quickly. So we, we're going to create a plan of correction that we submit to HRSA that's going to generally say, what are we going to do about this? So the overarching decision about the strategy of doing a joint co-applicant board will be in that Right, and that will be discussed at the board, of, the, the joint meeting, and then the board of supervisors will no, need to vote on it. But secondary to that, 
we all of the details, which will need to be worked out between you know April and July, basically. So I just wanted to, in some ways, just reassure that we need to make this big decision, and then there's going to be a lot of negotiation mm -hmm. and discussion and details. So lots of time to work those things out. Thank you, Nancy. Um, and board, we have one. I have public comment is open and I have one uh, one speaker and welcome back Mr. Rose. Oh, thank you very much uh, President uh, Lawrence and mm -hmm. distinguished board members and staff. Uh, in the interest of time, uh, I'm only only take three minutes. So other like unlike the hour I took last time. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I just want to let you know that uh, Abu Rahim is with me here. He is the uh, director for our uh, mentors on discharge program. And I've talked with you about that the last two times that I've been here. And uh, I, I attended, and, and, and uh, Mr. Abu also attended the uh, MHSA review for funding for the next round of, of uh, programs. And we were a little bit disturbed to see that the Mentors on Discharge program was not on the list to be funded. And so uh, I've talked with a number of people trying to get support for that program. And I've also talked to the president of the Berkeley Police Association. I've talked with the uh, mayor for Alameda County, I mean, Alameda, city of Alameda and other officials. And I got a surprising number, and that number was they were saying that about 40% of police interventions are dealing with the mentally ill. And so... I'm going to them to let them know that the Mentors on Discharge program has shown to reduce rehospitalizations by 70%. And there should be some correlation with that reduction in rehospitalizations with police interventions uh, dealing with mentally ill people on the street. So, again, I uh, appreciate uh, uh, Trustee DeVries talking with me after the meeting and any other help or any kinds of things that we, any people we can talk to to try to get this back on behavioral health care's agenda to be funded would be greatly appreciated. So I'm only going to take two minutes instead of your three. So thank you very much for listening to me. Thank you, Mr. Rose. We appreciate your being here. Okay. Uh, can I have a motion to adjourn? So moved. Thank you. Second. Yes. Second. Oh. On the favorite.